Hey, good morning, LifePoint. So good that you've joined us this morning, and I uh, hope you're enjoying this amazing April weather we're having, and that all is well with you and your family. Would you bow in prayer with me as we enter in this morning? Father God, we thank you for the privilege of uh, this manner of gathering while we can't meet together. We thank you that uh, where two or three are gathered, uh, you are present, and Lord, we we acknowledge that today, um, that even through virtual means that you, God, have provided for us, that that you can be present here with us and among us. Lord, we thank you for uh, <clears throat> this period in time when we're forced to slow down and we're forced to uh, re-examine some things in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this time. Uh, we don't always like it, but uh, we know, Lord, that you uh, are in control of all things, that we can trust you for this time, for your perfect timing in our lives and in, our, in the life of our church, the life of our nation. And uh, so help us to lean hard into you during these days and to, uh, to learn the things that you have to teach us. We pray this morning for our loved ones who are suffering from COVID-19. Lord, we pray uh, your protection of them. We pray for full recoveries for each of them. And uh, Lord, we pray for all those who are on the front lines of the, the battle against this virus. And we thank you for the leadership of our president, our vice president, and, and uh, their team of our governor, and his team, and uh, Lord, we pray your blessing in, on them, and that you would encourage them with uh, with uh, all that uh, you bring their way. God, we pray this morning that by your Spirit you would teach us, and uh, Lord, that you would be honored uh, as we examine your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're uh, introducing a brand new series. We're titling it uh, Simple Virtues for Complex Times. And each successive message will be unpacking what the Apostle Paul called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And I'm excited for this series. I'm especially excited that I'm going to be able to tag team through this series with Matt Sidley. And I hope that you'll be looking forward to that and that you'll join us each Sunday from wherever you are. We live in complex times, don't we? Um, each of us is finding that the challenges that these times present uh, frequently require more of us than we think that we're able to offer. Uh, we wonder where those resources will come from. We know what comes naturally to us, and we know that What comes naturally doesn't always produce the results we desire. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia, chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, he offers a list of what comes naturally to us as human beings. He calls them the works of the flesh. Here's what he said. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. You see, what comes naturally doesn't always produce the results that we desire. Actually, it never does. The pseudo-wisdom we often hear that we should just do what comes naturally or just be ourselves begins to ring hollow in those times of crisis, those times of challenge, days like we're living in now. And when we come to the realization that uh, life requires much more of us than just being ourselves, that we need something different, something more, uh, something we don't currently possess. Not to mention that Paul wants us to understand that the pathway of just being ourselves and, and doing what comes naturally is the highway to hell and not to heaven. What we need most will come not from ourselves or from within ourselves, but from outside ourselves, from someone else. What we need most is not what comes naturally, but what comes supernaturally from God. And the good news is found in what Paul writes next in verses 22 to 23 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit, he writes, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now consider that expression with me, the, the fruit of the Spirit. What does it mean? It means the, the virtues that the Spirit of God will produce in us when He comes to take up residence in us. And notice that it's not the fruits, plural, of the Spirit, but the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. As the Spirit of God does His work in our lives, we will discover all of it budding, blossoming, growing, bearing fruit, all at the same time. It's true that our salvation is not based on our morality. We're not saved by our goodness, by our virtue. We are saved by God's grace alone through personal faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But there is a moral dimension to our faith. The Spirit of God takes up residence in our lives. He begins to transform us from the inside out making us new people with a whole new way of thinking, of valuing, of speaking, and of living. So this morning I want to talk about the first virtue or the first attribute of the fruit that we can anticipate the Spirit of God producing in us as followers of Jesus, and that is love, love. The New Testament was written in the Greek language, and the Greeks had four words for love. The first is storge. Storge is best understood as just natural affection, especially the natural affection that exists between the members of a family. When you think about natural affection, it's, it's really in the family that you would most expect to find it. Unfortunately, the New Testament writers only use this word to lament its absence. They use the variation astorge, which, which means lacking in natural affection. 
perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that when the translators of the English Standard Version encountered this word a storge in the text, they chose the English word heartless, heartless to express it. The second Greek word for love is phileo. Phileo is the word of the word for friendship, for brotherly love, brotherly affection. It's the root for the name of the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Paul wrote to the Roman believers, love one another with phileo, with brotherly affection. The apostle Peter urged his readers, having purified your souls by your, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, phileo again, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The third word for love in the Greek language is eros, and this word doesn't actually appear in the New Testament, but it comes from the name of the mythical, mythological Greek god of love. His counterpart in the Roman pantheon was Cupid. The word points to the experience of physical attraction, of sexual desire, of sensual expression, of romantic love. The fourth Greek word for love is agape. And it's quite distinct from the others. The the fruit of the Spirit, Paul wrote in Galatians 5.23, is agape. Agape is the the word used first and used primarily for God's love for us. Its, its meaning is always defined in relationship to God. It's often referred to as unconditional love because it's not a love rooted in natural affection or conditioned on any merit on the part of its object. For example, Paul says that God shows his love, his agape, for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, we had nothing to offer him, nothing to merit his favor, nothing to merit his love. Instead, we were his enemies, hostile toward him. Tim Keller has said that at the heart of our faith is a man dying for his enemies. Agape is where love, all love, began. C.S. Lewis wrote regarding agape, we begin at the real beginning with love as the divine energy. And this primal love is gift love. In God, there's no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. This primal love is gift love, he said. Lewis drew a distinction between gift love and need love. Love that's motivated by some need on the part of the lover, not on the object of that love. So when C.S. Lewis says that agape is gift love, uh, he's saying that it is all gift. It is all giving. If we understand biblical theology correctly, we understand at least this, that that God was under no compulsion whatsoever to create the universe. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. 
In the same way, God was under no obligation whatsoever to send his son to the cross, except that he had promised from the beginning of time in a variety of ways and on a variety of occasions that he would act to solve the predicament of humanity's alienation from him because of our sin, a predicament that we were entirely incapable of solving on our own. And and in his love and faithfulness, he obligated himself to fulfill his own promises. In fact, in light of the full sweep of what the Bible reveals, it, it becomes clear that God's agape love is is all about his expressed choices and his own faithfulness to those choices. For example, God said to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, For for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now don't miss this. He chose Israel not because of who they were or how great a nation they were, but only because he loved them. He chose to love them and because he is a promise-keeping God. You know, Jesus said something quite similar to his disciples when he said in John Chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I chose you. There are a number of passages that we could look at in order to gain a better understanding of of what the Bible says about love. But I can't think of a better one than the Apostle John's discussion in 1 John 4, 7 through 12. If you have a Bible, why don't you grab that and, or turn it on and find 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Remember, this is not the, the Gospel of John, but the first epistle of John. Uh, so you'll find it close to the book of Revelation, which is the final book of the Bible. So if you go all the way to the back and then take a left, you'll find it. 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. In this passage, the the old, the elderly apostle does three things. First, he, he shows us the source of love, who is God. He points us, secondly, to the essence of love, the essence of agape, which is the gospel. And he directs us to the right response to God's love, God's agape, which is to love one another. And by the way, the the word translated love throughout this passage and throughout the entire chapter is agape. Let's begin then with the source of agape in verses 7 to 8. And again, allow me to read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 7 begins then with, Beloved, let us love one another, or more literally, loved ones love each other. Loved ones love each other. He's speaking to the church, to Christ followers. It's a command, it's an exhortation, and just three words in the Greek language, but but they establish the theme for this entire passage. We would say, I think, in response to the command, if we're honest, but I can't. I can't. I mean, have you met some of the people in our church? (laughs) For that matter, have you met my husband or my wife? Have you met my kids, my in-laws? Do you have any idea what it's been like to have everybody home for an entire month? That's really the point of agape, isn't it? I mean, agape, as a matter of choice, loves the unlovely, the undeserving, the unlikable, the annoying, the irritating, even the repulsive. Unlike storge, phileo, and eros, it's not natural. It's supernatural. It can't be generated by unredeemed human hearts. The Apostle John is unequivocal about the source of agape. He says, agape is from God. God puts this love in our hearts. But how? How does he do that? Well, Paul points to two essential experiences, prerequisites, if you will, if, if we're going to be able to download the love for others that God wants to equip us with. The first, John says in verse 4, is to be born of God. Everything who, everyone who loves is born of God, John wrote. And what does that mean? Jesus said that for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven, he or she must be born again. Whenever anyone believes in Jesus and transfers their trust from themselves to God, from themselves, from their religiosity, their goodness, their charity, their cleverness, their cuteness, their 
persuasiveness, all of the things that we tend to lean on, when we transfer, when anyone transfers their trust from all of that to simply what Christ accomplished at the cross, a spiritual transformation takes place that can only be described as being born again. A spiritual rebirth. The Bible tells us that when we transfer our trust from ourselves to Christ, our, our sins are forgiven. God declares us righteous on the basis of our faith in Christ. We're reconciled to God. The Spirit of God comes and takes up residence in our lives. And we become brand new people. The Apostle Paul expressed it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If a man is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. The past is finished and gone. Everything has become fresh and new. The second essential experience is to begin growing in a relationship with God. John describes this as knowing God. This is the knowledge of personal experience, progressively getting to know God on a personal basis. We frequently refer to this as having a personal relationship with God. As you read and you reflect on God's Word, that is the Bible, as you grow in your knowledge of Jesus, as you learn to converse with God, through prayer, as you develop relationships with other Christ followers, you will come to know God better and better. To know God is to grow in love because God himself is love. We do not, and we must not say, the reverse. We must not say, love is God. Because love is never to be an object of worship. But to say that God is love is to say that he himself is pure love. He's the ultimate embodiment of agape. He is the only source of agape. And then in verse 8, John makes a, a stark, startling declaration. He says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You know, every time I read this, I, I can just hear someone saying, Are you telling me that if I don't believe in Jesus then I can't be a loving person? And I think John's answer might sound something like this. I'm not saying that you can't express storge, phileo, or eros. You can because they are natural loves. But I am saying that you can't express agape because it is a supernatural love that comes only from God and is expressed only by those who are born again and growing in relationship with him. Agape is an entirely different dimension, an entirely different quality of love. Paul put it this way in Romans 5, 5. God's love, agape, again, has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, given to believers, given to Christ followers, given to the church. The fruit of the Spirit's presence and transformation in our lives is love. In verses 9 to 10, John points us secondly to the essence of agape, which is the gospel. Listen to this, verses 9 to 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's agape, John says, was made manifest among us, which is to say that it was made visible, it was made clear, it was made known when God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus himself expressed this in his conversation with his friend Nicodemus. God so loved the world, Jesus said, of himself, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Because we're separated from God by our sin, the Bible says that you and I were spiritually dead. We stood condemned before God, and there was nothing you and I could do about that fact. Nevertheless, in that condition, God loved us. In our sinful, spiritually dead condition. His agape moved him to act to solve our problem. He he sent his son into the world to take on human flesh, to die in our place as our substitute, to bear in his own body the penalty for our sin, and to absorb all of the wrath of God toward our sin on our behalf in our place, so that when we believe in Jesus, when we transfer our trust to him, we pass from death to life and from condemnation to liberation. This is why John can go on and say in verse 10, in this is love, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You want to see what love looks like? Get a look at a God who loved an entire humanity whom he had created, but who were in rebellion against him, who didn't love him, who were at best hostile toward him, and and who were at worst apathetic toward him. Observe a God who cared enough to send the very best, his only 
son to be the atoning sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath and, and just destroy the barrier that stood between us, not because we were deserving, not because we ever had or ever would do or say or think anything that would merit his favor, but because God is love, because God is loving. Finally, in verses 11 and 12, John directs us to the right response to God's agape, which is to love one another. Verses 11 and 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John comes back now to where we started in verse 7, urging us as believers in Jesus to love one another. If God loved us like that, We also ought to love one another, John says. But now he refers not to the capacity to render agape to one another, but rather the moral obligation to do so. When John says we also ought to love one another, he's he's employing an expression from the world of law that spoke to indebtedness and the ethical obligation to satisfy the debt. It's as if John is saying, if God loved us like that, to such an extreme extent, at such a costly price, then we are now compelled, as a matter of moral and ethical obligation, to similarly love one another. Paul wrote to the Romans, let no debt, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Jesus had said earlier to his disciples, freely you have received, freely give again. And notice verse 12, because John has one last surprising thing to say to us. No one has ever seen God, he writes. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You know, read one way, we we might be led to think that John is now saying that God's presence is in us and his love being perfected in us is conditioned on our love for one another. In other words, you could hear God saying, if you love one another, I'll stick around. But if you continue to being being the, the selfish, self-absorbed, self-serving person you usually are, then I'm out of here. Unfortunately, that's the way too many of us think about God and about our relationship with him. When we behave ourselves, God's pleased with us. But when we don't, he's angry with us. Thankfully, that's not what John's expressing here. He is saying instead, That our love for one another, expressed tangibly, practically, even sacrificially, presents the undeniable evidence that something has changed in us. Something has changed about us. That the Spirit of God has, has in fact, taken up residence in our lives and, and that we're coming to know Him better. We're being sanctified. 
We're being made holy. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. And what's more, he's saying that the love that God pours into our hearts by his spirit and that we're then enabled to express to one another makes God visible. No one has ever seen God, he says. When we render agape to one another, when we love one another the way he calls us and enables us to love, he becomes visible in us and visible through us. No wonder then that Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Take a moment right now and think through your relationships. Could you use an infusion of love for any of them, for your parents, your, your spouse, your children, your friends, your co-workers? The fruit of the Spirit's presence and work in your life is first agape. It's first love. The fruit of the Spirit's presence is agape. God pours out his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given you if you're in Christ, who, who lives in you and is able and willing to love through you. See, God loves the people you want and need to love, but may find it difficult at times or all the time to love. And he loves them infinitely more than you can or ever will. Ask him to just flood your heart with his love for them and ask him to love them through you. And just see what, what he will do. You may be listening to this message uh, this morning. You've, you've not yet believed in Jesus. You've not yet transferred your trust to him. And if that's the case, I invite you to make that decision today. God loves you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in your place, in your place. And he loves you so much that he arranged for you to hear this message today. When you believe in Jesus you will pass from spiritual death to spiritual life. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll begin an entirely new life as a new person, and you will find the resources to live the kind of life you've always wanted to live and to love in a way that you've never experienced before. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Thank you for taking the time, wherever you are, to to join us today, and, and thanks for listening. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing love for us, your agape love, that unconditional, self-sacrificing, promise-keeping love. And Lord, we acknowledge together today that there was nothing that we could ever say or do or think or even feel that would cause us to have deserved your love. We thank you that you do love us. We thank you that 
you chose to love us. We thank you, Father, that you chose to send your Son, Christ, to be our Savior, to demonstrate your love by going to the cross for the likes of us who really didn't care about you, nor in rebellion against you, who were your enemies. I thank you that you've reconciled us to yourself through your Son, Christ. Thank you that you loved us. Thank you that you are pouring out your love into our hearts even now. And Lord, would you compel us as you have enabled us to genuinely love one another. For your sake, for your kingdom, for your glory, that the name of Jesus Christ would be honored and lifted up among us. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Amen. Hey, I hope you have a great week. Stay well. God bless you.